Not all of us look the way the world expects us to look, think as the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destination the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and here are their stories. Program note, today's episode features former Las Cruces, New Mexico police officer Christopher Smelzer, who was involved in a highly controversial use of force incident, one which is covered widely not only in local media, but nationally as well. There will be descriptions of and discussions about acts that can be described as graphically violent. The episode may not be suitable for all listeners. One final note. The goal of the Square Peg podcast is to hear the stories of guests who have had unique and extraordinary experiences, who have made huge changes in the course of their lives, and those who have otherwise lived differently than expected. We neither endorse nor disavow the views, actions, or experiences of our guests. We just want to hear their stories. So, Christopher, if you had to guess and put a number on it, what number would you assign to the weight that was lifted off your shoulders in mid-July of last summer when a district court judge granted the motion for a directed verdict that was filed by your attorney, Amy Orlando, thus dismissing the second-degree murder charge against you? Well, let's say it was, uh, if you put a number between 1 out of 10, I'd say just keep counting. I'll probably get back to you sometime tomorrow. You can't even... (laughs) I, I I couldn't even tell you. I mean, it's it just, it was the most relieving feeling. I, I can't explain it. I really couldn't. And you're still, pro- I mean, obviously you're still processing it. Oh, absolutely. It, it's still something that I, it still seems surreal. You know, the, the, the whole thing seems surreal. But at the end of the day, um, I thank God that my family and I got through it. My family got me through it. And uh, I'm I'm just grateful that it's over. Did you have any kind of anticipation? Did you did you? I, now we'll get into this later. I mean, you obviously had to prepare yourself for worst case scenario. But did you have any idea about best case? I mean, did you did you have any idea of how you would feel, or was it everything you expected? Was it better or worse, or not as anticlimactic? Or um... you know, uh, that's an interesting question. I uh, it was kind of one of those situations where you hope for the best, prepare for the worst kind of thing. And the day, I, I remember the day going into it when we were preparing for the, um, to, to give the arguments for a directed verdict. And I remember my attorney saying, Today, he might do it. The judge might actually do it. Listening to the arguments, it's just the case isn't there. I don't even know how it got here. It, it could happen. And, you know, I, I remember thinking to myself as the arguments were being read off before the judge ever gave the uh, the directed verdict. I remember thinking, you know what, this fight isn't over, but we're still fighting. We're, we're going to keep getting through this, and we will get through this. And I, I guess, you know, always very hopeful that he would give that directed verdict, but I, I truthfully just didn't think he would just because of the way the case had gone anyway. Um, I, You know, everyone was kind of giving the opinion that it was too uh, – too political, too high profile, too whatever it may be for them just to give a directed verdict or just to dismiss it, whatever it may be, even if the case wasn't there. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it, it's, it's another one of those things. It's hard to explain. Now for our listeners, a directed verdict, and I don't even know about a civil trial, but in a criminal trial, a directed verdict is, uh, something that a defense attorney wants the prosecution, uh, has rested their case uh, a defense attorney will and it's almost 
expected. It's almost a matter of course uh, for a defense attorney to do this, no matter how good the case is, is to file a motion to a, for a directed verdict. And a directed verdict is something that, uh, if granted, uh, the judge will dismiss the jury and say there wasn't even enough evidence presented uh, to prove to, for a jury to even consider. Um, and that I have been in in my experience. Um, I have never had, I've had a directed verdict on a couple of counts, but not on an entire case. And of course, there was only one one count against you, right? The second degree murder charge. Correct. Okay. So just, so for our listeners, so you know what a directed verdict is, uh, the state of New Mexico presented their case uh, against Mr. Smelzer. And at the conclusion of the everything that the state had to present, his defense attorney, Amy Orlando, uh, filed a motion for a directed verdict. The judge granted the, the, the motion and dismissed the jury and you were free. Um so this case has received so much attention. And you told your story uh, of the events of the events of February 29th, 2020, in detail so many times. Uh, for context, I'm going to periodically give some details on the case so our listeners know what happened. But I'm really more interested in how the results of your actions that night and the resulting legal and professional ramifications affected you and your family. Now, um, Christopher, you know uh, that I have done, as you can say, my research in, as you know, um, and I'm about as intimately familiar with every detail of this case as a person could be. Sure. Um, so I, you know, having said that, like I said, I'm going to give periodically, I will kind of, if people have not read newspaper articles or if people don't know the details of what uh, happened that night of February 29th with the vascular neck restraint, trying to arrest somebody and things like that, I'll kind of add things in to give a little bit of context. Now, you started um, with the Las Cruces Police Department in 2015. Um and you went to work that night of February 28th, just like any other night. Go back to just before you became a police officer. What attracted you to the law enforcement profession? Why did you choose Las Cruces Police Department? Uh, did you apply anywhere else? Uh, how did that all go? You know, I um, I think from a very young age, I, I always knew that law enforcement was where I wanted to go. Um, I, have a, I have a cousin that, I mean, I, I'm the oldest of three and I would consider my cousin the closest thing I've ever had to an older brother and he worked for the police department as well and um I always Here looked in Las Cruces. That's correct. Okay. Um I always looked up to him and then my father's been law enforcement forever. And you know, same thing. It was if anything, just kinda wanted to follow in his footsteps. Um so yeah, like I said, from a very young age I think that's always what I knew I wanted to do. Um we actually moved to Las Cruces when I was eighth grade, eighth grade ish, uh, for my dad's job in law enforcement. So, um, we've been here since then. And, you know, I grew to love the town, grew to love the place. And, uh, I, I didn't really have much of a desire to move out. You know, my family's here, all my friends are here. And like I said, love, love the place. I had a desire to serve my community and I figure, Hey, this is as good a place as any. So you go through the process. It's about, I mean, it could be six, eight month uh, process, all the hoops you have to jump through. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, still a six month academy when you went through. Yeah, 14, about six months. 14 weeks of field training. Sure. Yeah. Um, which oddly enough, uh, I've actually counted this up. Now, of course, the state of New Mexico has reduced the number of minimum number of hours of for basic training. Uh, and I know that some departments around here have, uh, have reduced theirs as well. But at that time with a six month Academy, you're looking at about a thousand hours, almost a thousand hours of basic training. Would you factor in the 14 weeks of field training? You arrive at somewhere between 16 and 1700 
hours of training, which oddly enough is about the same number of hours somebody spends in a lecture hall and or lab earning a four-year degree, sure. um, which is something that a lot of people don't realize. Um, but anyway, you get done with that, and, and so you were a police officer on the street for five, for five years, and you were, I would imagine, in the patrol division that whole time? Yes, sir, I was. Okay, and so in the patrol division, you are doing what? Um, so the last couple years, I, I worked graveyards. Um, me and uh, what I, I'll put in quotes, my, my partner, um, we we considered ourselves very proactive officers. We we didn't really just want to graveyards. The shift of graveyards can be very boring if you let it. You can sit there and wait for a call to come out, which you know at two in the morning may never call. So or yeah, you may you may just end up sitting there for a while. We enjoyed going out and um, I don't know how else to explain it, but say basically look for crime. You know, look look for you get a lot of. Uh, We'll say interesting people at that that hour. Um, so I, I enjoyed being proactive. I enjoyed, you know, hopefully stopping some of the crime that was going on at night, whether it's burglaries, finding stolen cars, whatever it may be. Now, to be clear, you and your partner don't, it's not partners as in like a big city where you two people to a car, but you guys often work the same district. Sure, yeah. Same um, area. Yeah, often same district, um, not, not same vehicles. But the reason why I consider him my partner, they're, there weren't a ton of other officers that were as proactive as we were, not to say that they were other officers were bad officers or anything like that. But um, I think because we were both very highly motivated, we worked very well together and we, we enjoyed, we enjoyed that type of work. So we could really, uh, we could really kind of piggyback off each other. If you got this, if you got dispatched somewhere, he showed up at your call and vice versa. Sure. Yeah. If you ended up initiating some activity, he showed up at your, your stop or whatever and vice versa. Absolutely. So you guys know each other pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. Probably if you work together long enough, you learn to, uh, anticipate their, their, you know, their tendencies, you know what they're thinking by body language. People don't have to communicate necessarily verbally. Uh, and that could be a very positive thing. Um, so at some point, on February 29th of 2020, I mean, right at the beginning of the pandemic, um, you approached a traffic stop over at uh, Alameda and Three Crosses, uh, during which it was discovered that um, a passenger in this vehicle, Mr. Antonio Valenzuela, uh, had a felony warrant for his arrest uh, for probation violation, and he ran from the car uh, on foot. Um, what ensued was a full-on sprint for about 20 seconds, and then a physical struggle with him on the ground along with another officer that lasted for over a minute. So we're talking a minute and a half of all out 100%. I've watched the body camera video many times. Um, I've watched all of the body cameras from all of the officers who were on scene, you and your partner, the couple who got, you know, got there afterwards. We're talking a, a minute and a half of all out fight, sprint and fight for a minute and a half. Um, I just want to make that very clear uh, to our listeners. And, when all was said and done, uh, a vascular neck restraint was used after the foot chase. Verbal commands were given, the use of a taser, hand strikes, joint manipulations, and finally, um, Mr. Valenzuela was handcuffed. Um, you and your partner were both extremely physically fit. Um, I actually know because uh, you appear obviously very fit. Your partner... Um, I knew because we used to go to the same gym together and I would see him work out. Again, he, like you, just on physical appearance, is extremely fit looking. And I've, again, I, I've seen him work out. I know he's in damn good shape. Sure. Um, you guys are extremely physically fit men. 
yet on your body-worn video recording, you could be heard breathing extremely heavily. How gassed were you? Very. I mean, I think like you just said, you, you can see it on the camera. I mean, it's... I, I, it's it's one of those tough things to try and duplicate, but I mean, I would never challenge anybody to go out and go fight somebody to see what it feels like. But I mean, go for an all out sprint and then I'm sure wrestlers and, you know, whatever it may be, know that. But I mean, do an all out sprint and then do some kind of wrestling, fighting, whatever it may be. And you're you're tired already from the sprint let alone the fight. Either one of those alone would, would tire you out. Both of them together, absolutely, you're going to be gassed. And just for purposes of being, to, to add a little bit of, of uh, context and detail, and this is in no way, shape, or form to disparage um, the, the man who unfortunately lost his life, Mr. Valenzuela, but um, it, it was found that he was under the influence of methamphetamine, um, had that in the system, which pumps you up, jacks you up, gives you extra, you know, uh, an edge, if you will, if you're in some sort of physical contest. Um, now, also to be clear, what, when I describe for our listeners what the, what a vascular, vascular neck restraint is, um, is something that anybody who watches any sort of uh, mixed martial arts or participates uh, in any grappling arts or submission grappling uh, is a lot of times it's called a rear naked choke, uh, almost always applied from a position directly behind the person upon whom it's being applied um, with the goal of having um, what I believe you said at one point was chin alignment. Uh, having basically the, the your elbow in line with their chin so that pressure uh, from both the forearm and the bicep are on either side of the neck to cut off blood flow uh, to the head. And if done correctly and properly, um, should cause a person to pass out briefly without interrupting any kind of airflow. Um, again, that's just for our listeners who aren't familiar with that term. I know I used it. Now, when you and your partner were removed uh, from that immediate area where the paramedics cared uh, for Mr. Valenzuela, what was going through your mind? I think, uh, I, I don't want to speak for my partner as well, but I think we were both very concerned, worried. Um, you know, it, it's, I, I guess none of us were sure what exactly happened. We We've been... I can say I've been in situations before similar to that, not not the exact same scenario, same everything, but um, situations before where I have had somebody under the influence of of narcotics who've passed out on me, not not from that maneuver. That's not what I'm saying at all, but just you know whatever it may be. We've we've had a an individual we were taking to uh, the detention center one time who passed out in the back seat, and they medically got him cleared and said, yeah, he was just extremely high on drugs and passed out. And, uh, you know, we're, I, I think initially that's what I thought happened. And when the fire department kept working on him, we're kind of thinking this, this might be a little more something, you know, we don't know what exactly it is that's going on. And, and I, it, it was absolutely concerning. And now it, now it seems to me that uh, when I say removed from the scene, you guys, at some point, somebody had tried, I don't remember who it was, tried to apply a taser when he was trying to jump over that fence. And then, um, both you and your partner drop gear off of your belts at some point, things that you don't want other people picking up. Sure. So at some point um, when two other officers arrived right at the end, right when you were getting him into handcuffs, um, while it was not verbally articulated, it was clearly understood. They were there to provide care. And you guys were catching your breath and going, oh, I think I dropped this here. I dropped this there. You guys, you guys are going to pick up uh, the stuff that you dropped. Now, you weren't, and so you weren't there actually when paramedics got on scene and actually began 
rendering aid, right? That's correct. As I was um, actually, as I was walking back, I I noticed one of the uh, the paramedics ask an, another officer to 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 assist her so she could start CPR. Now, what people might not realize is now, of course, I've I've never been um, I've never used deadly force, thankfully, uh, and thankfully, I've also never had anybody in my custody die. Um, for those who don't work in law enforcement, haven't worked in law enforcement, an in-custody death is a nightmare, an absolute nightmare. When you take somebody into custody, when you, one of the reasons that we don't allow people to step out of their vehicle when we make a traffic stop is when you're in our custody, whether it's a, a, a brief detention like a traffic stop or actual arrest, you're in the, you're, you're the responsibility of the law enforcement officer, your safety. And by you getting out of the car, if you get hit by a passing car, that's the law enforcement officer's responsibility. Same thing when, when, a, when a cop arrests somebody, um, the, the officer is responsible for that person's safety. I know personally I have stopped my car no less than four to five times on the way from a traffic stop to the jail because the guy in the back kept taking a seatbelt off because I'm not driving down the road with an unsecured person. Um, you removed from yourself from the situation uh, you started to walk back uh, when paramedics arrived and were giving aid. And at some point you did walk back around the back of that little building. Um, and there was conversation uh, between you and, and, uh, uh, and, and your partner. And, and I remember very clearly it was, it was, it was concern. You know, there was very, there was grave concern uh, for Mr. Valenzuela. At what point did you realize that he had passed? Um, I, I don't know the exact time. I want to say maybe 30 minutes later uh, when we were removed from the scene. Um, we were actually instructed to go back to the station. Uh, the the uh, firefighters on scene declared him deceased at that point. Okay. Um, now, something that I actually, one of the details I don't know, one of the few, one of the few details I don't know about this case is, when an officer uses deadly force um, and they're removed from the scene, they're given what's called a buddy officer. Someone just because if some if a police officer uses deadly force, they not only have used force, but it was it obviously in response to them experiencing being a victim of a crime, someone assaulting them, threatening to assault, pulling a gun, or doing whatever it was that caused the officer to use the deadly force. Uh, needless to say, the most stressful moment of their life, probably. So they have somebody that just kind of stays with them. Don't talk to them about what happened. Um, was that the same for you in that situation? Did you, were you given a buddy officer? Were you, uh, yes, I, I, I was given a buddy officer and that situation was very unexpected and strange to me. Um, I didn't think that I used deadly force. That was not my intention. That was not, that wasn't what was supposed to happen. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, uh, yes, that is what happened. Um, I was given a buddy officer. So might actually, now that I think of it, the way you explained this, it may sound like might've not, I'm not saying that it'd been detrimental or, or, or negative, but had an unattended effect. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, now per policy, you were placed immediately on administrative leave, uh, while the case was investigated. Um, tell me how you felt. Tell me what you expected. What were you worrying about just in those first few days, really? Um, I think the first few days was just being unsure of everything. Um, unfortunately, my I'm not trying to badmouth anybody, but my department wasn't very good at communicating with me what the process was or what was going on. Um, I was I was 
basically given an attorney and she kind of took over and said, Hey, this is what we're going to do. And I more or less sat around waiting to see what, what was going to happen. Was there any union involvement? There was. Okay. And I understand that there's, you know, the union usually provides an attorney in this case. Uh, it was some, not, not the person you expected, but obviously somebody you're very thankful uh, uh, you ended absolutely. up having on your side. Absolutely. Um, now, for our listeners uh, who, don't, who are not in law enforcement and don't know, when an officer uh, either uses lethal force or, or when an in-custody death occurs, uh, there is a criminal investigation, obviously, uh, but there's also an administrative investigation, which is done by your internal affairs or, or locally here they call it the professional services unit or professional standards unit. Um, about a week and a half after this incident, you participated in, in an interview with detectives from a local officer-involved incident task force, uh, something you're not required to do per your rights guaranteed by the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution. Again, this is a criminal investigation. You are a suspect in a homicide. Uh, you're not required, as nobody is, to, to go talk uh, to detectives. Why did you decide to talk to detectives? Um. Well, after speaking with my attorney, we we ultimately made the decision to 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 speak with detectives. We didn't I, I didn't have anything to hide. I didn't feel like there was anything there that I was going to say that you know, I I I didn't think that there was anything that was going to that was going to um Let me see if I can think of a better way to explain this. Um I was going to tell the truth and I knew that the truth was not, I felt like I didn't do anything wrong. You know, it was a horrible situation all the way around and, um, I apologize, you know, with this, my heart starts beating a little faster every time I have to talk about any of this stuff again. Um, but yeah, I, I, I had no problem talking to the detectives. I, I felt like everything was going to be okay if I told my side. Now, you did. Uh, I know it is the, the policy, uh, and there is a there is a debate about this, and I actually had another guest on, uh, retired police psychologist Alexis Artwell, um, who has a, a particular opinion on this. And, and, and people in the, in the force science uh, and use of force community are kind of divided on this, but it is customary around here for officers uh, who have uh, – either use deadly force or have uh, been responsible for or had somebody in their custody who died uh, for them to review their own body camera footage uh, from the incident. Um, my understanding is you, you did watch yours. Uh, yes, I did. It was very short time. I only got maybe 20 minutes before I was able to speak to the detectives before. So now, now hindsight being 2020, do you think that that was a positive thing that you watched the body camera footage or a negative um, or neither? I, I don't know. At the end of the day, three years later, everything worked out the way that I hoped it would. So I'm going to say it was, it was a positive. Now having, obviously having applied for your job as with the police department, you had to do a polygraph test, uh, take a, do a interview with a background investigator, uh, take a polygraph. You're hooked up all these things. They measure your breathing, your pulse, your respiration, uh, your perspiration, um, that's stressful enough. Had you ever been interviewed by a detective before in an interview room at a police station? Uh, not in that kind of situation, no. Knowing what the situation was, knowing that this was a homicide investigation, that you were the suspect, 
um, that there was the, always the possibility of criminal charges. Um, were you nervous? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to not be nervous in, in a situation like that. And, and again, it was, I think the most nerve wracking part was what actually ended up happening in the end, knowing that I, I never intended for this outcome to happen and still being charged with a crime. And, and in my opinion, wrongfully charged. Now, um, what was your impression of the interview? What was your impression of the, the interview questions, uh, the two detectives who interviewed you? Um, any thoughts on that? Um, I, I thought they were both very prof- uh, professional. Excuse me. Um, you know, neither neither one of them came off, I would say, aggressive or, or rude. Um, it was... I, I felt like, for the most part, they did their job. I can also tell you, you know, I not only have, uh, well, let's just say I watched the video as well of, of the interview. Uh, we'll leave it at that. But I can tell you I was quite impressed with, with how you conducted yourself during the interview and how you articulated everything. Um, I, I remember thinking, this, this guy knocked it out of the park, to be honest with you. Um, now, in addition to a criminal investigation, uh, there's also uh, an internal investigation. Uh, now, unlike the criminal investigation where you have a right to not speak, um, as a condition of your employment, you are required to actually give a statement to internal affairs. Uh, how long after your interview in the criminal case did this happen, and how were the interviews different, if at all? Well, here's where it starts to get interesting. Uh, internal interview did not happen. I was I was never interviewed internally. Okay, so at some point you were terminated. Correct. Um, I'm going to imagine, was that before or after you were charged? Before. Interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> and now, I say interesting for a million reasons. I do know that in some cases, um, you know, a person can remain in whatever position they're in until they get indicted or until they get charged. Uh, comes to mind, I don't know if you lived here I want to say 2006, 2000, around that time, there was a, a, a power forward for the Aggies, a basketball player named Tyrone Nelson, a hell of a basketball player. But he had been accused of a strong-arm robbery of a pizza delivery guy, and the moment that he was indicted or the moment he was charged, he was dismissed from the program because you can't, have, you can't be charged with a felony. Um, but it, knowing everything that happened and knowing that he was under investigation, he still remained uh, part of the, the athletic program until he was charged. Um, I, I thought that maybe, and I don't remember, I actually really don't remember that far back, how that all went down. I kind of would assume that maybe, well, again, that you would be interviewed as part of an internal investigation and that, and that um, it, it is odd that you were, you, not only were you not interviewed, but you were terminated before you were charged. Uh, in any sense, you know, how were you notified of their, you know, when, when any kind of major disciplinary action is done in law enforcement, uh, it's customary to have what's called a notice of intent, notice of intent to suspend, notice of intent to demote, notice of intent to terminate. Did you receive that? Um, I got called into the uh, the police station, and um, I was told basically to bring in all my gear. And I'm going to be honest with you, my very first thought was they're probably going to charge me with a crime, and this is why I'm getting fired. Um, and I, I asked that very specifically. I said, am I going to get charged with a crime? And they told me, we don't have any knowledge of that. So, you know, 
I, I don't know. Again, like you said, interesting. I, I, I don't know. I was called in that day. They told me to bring my stuff, and that was kind of it. You know, I have it in my notes to ask you to de- describe your life during the spring of 2020, and it's kind of oh, very open-ended. Um, I, I can't imagine anything. it was anything short of a nightmare. Um, but, we, you know, we talked about those first few days, and then we talked about a week and a half later you, you spoke to detectives. Was there any kind of change? Did things did you become more anxious as time went by? Did you come become more relaxed? I mean, was there any kind of – it was about three months between the time this happened and the time you were charged. Was it was, was there any evolution of how you felt or how anxious you were, how nervous you were during those three months? Um, I think that I think one of the problems was I became complacent. And what I mean by that is um, I was just constantly insured by my attorneys, my family, my friends. Chris, you can't get charged with a crime here. Nothing's going to happen. They're waiting for a toxicology report to come out. And it's going to show that narcotics were involved in this and it wasn't your fault and you'll be sent back to work. It's, it's just a matter of waiting for that. And, and I think that, like I said, I became, I became complacent with that. So as it got closer and eventually I got called in, I, yeah, absolutely. It just took a, took a turn for the worse. And, and on top of that, we're in the thick of the, the really the first couple months of the uh, pandemic. You were stuck yeah. at home. Yeah. Um, obviously, you weren't going to go to work because you're on administrative leave. But um, and in some cases, you know, that could have worked out to maybe be a good thing for you because we'll get to this later. But you know, the the publicity and the, nor- the notoriety of it all um, has surely had its effect on you. Now, I believe it was in June of 2020 when the Third Judicial District Attorney Gerald Byers uh, announced his office was finally the charge of involuntary manslaughter against you. Uh, involuntary manslaughter is the lowest. Um, homicide charge here in the state of New Mexico. Uh, how were you notified? Uh, and what was your immediate feeling? Um, I found out watching TV. Um, my attorney told me, Hey, we're, we're, we're in good contact with the, uh, the district attorney. They said that if something happens, they will be, they, they will let us know right away. And that wasn't the case. Um, we were we were watching TV, watching the news, and I remember the article popped up, um, something to the effect of Las Cruces officer charged with fourth degree murder. Did you ever have any explanation from? Did you ever get a, an answer, an explanation from the the district attorney's office about how and why that went down the way it did? Uh, no, I did not. They, but from my understanding, and I, I don't want to speak incorrectly, or, um, but I I don't think that they were willing to speak with my attorney much about that. Now, you were required to surrender yourself, uh, and you were booked into the Doniana County Detention Center um, before a magistrate court judge released you on bond. Got to be an interesting experience being on the other side of that. Well, um, this is one of those things where I'm incredibly thankful for my attorneys. Uh, I'll kind of explain this process here. When we found out, um, my attorney immediately filed an emergency hearing through the uh, through the magistrate court, um, basically to get the conditions of bond or whatever it may be out of the way right away, um, the magistrate judge found absolutely no reason to think that I was a flight risk or a danger to the public, and released me on my own recognizance. So and you didn't have to get booked. I did not. Okay, I was mistaken. 
Um, now, eventually, the office of then New Mexico Attorney General Hector Balderas, who now has now termed out, uh, he picked up the case and he increased the charge to second-degree murder. Uh, at this point in 2020, the world uh, wasn't just in the midst of a first wave of a deadly you know, pandemic, um, but the racial justice protests were full in swing across the U.S., uh, involving, obviously sparked by the George Floyd uh, homicide uh, in Minneapolis. Do you believe politics played any part in your being charged? I've said this before. My personal opinion, absolutely. How, I mean, how can it not? You know, the when the attorney general picks up three cases, three law enforcement cases that are similar in nature as far as a restraint being used in an, in an individual uh, passing away because of it, and then saying my goal is to end the dangerous chokeholds of law enforcement, which wasn't the case here, um, how can you say it's not political? Yeah, um, you know, that's that's a... Um that's, I don't think, something that's going to get resolved here on this show uh, during this episode. But, you know, it was almost exactly just over. It was just over three years between the time you were charged and the time you went to trial. Or I'm sorry, two years uh, between the time you were charged and the time you went to trial in July of, of last year. Um, the hell do you do while you're waiting for that? Um, enjoy the time with my family. You know, I'm. I'm incredibly blessed to have an amazing wife and two beautiful little girls. And uh, I was very well aware that while confident that it would all work out, that, you know, potentially it could not work out. And um, I was I was just grateful to, to spend that time with my family. Now, uh, for listeners, again, who are not involved in the criminal justice system, uh, conditions of release are things that are set by a judge when a person... Uh bonds out of jail um a lot of times that have to do with you can't have contact with a victim or you can't leave the state or you can't drink alcohol or do drugs or anything like that what were your conditions of release uh basically what you said i mean it's it was just kind of standard release conditions there there wasn't anything different or major imposed on me now you mentioned your children now you have a very young child and a baby i do yeah she uh she just turned one and your older child she is going to be six this year. Okay, so she's three, four. Did have any clue? How do you explain that to a three-year-old? Didn't. Did she have any idea? She had no idea what was going on. Nope, didn't. And um, if I had it my way, I would never let either of them know what happened. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I think everything worked out the way it did for a reason. Um, and I'm grateful that this happened now instead of, when she is older and didn't know what was going on. She didn't, the children didn't have to go through it basically. Absolutely. They, all they knew was dad got to stay home and play with me today. <laughs> and I'm, I'm grateful for that. Now, you know, we talked about conditions of release and we talked about this being the pandemic and being kind of limited as where you could, as, as far as where you could go for many reasons. Um, but what was it like going out of your house? Um, did you receive any threats? People go by your house. Did you have to shut down social media? Um, I'll kind of go in reverse there. Social media, yeah, we we shut down social media. Um, which, if uh, I can make a recommendation to everybody listening, it's good for your mental health. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> take take a little time away from social media. Um, that wasn't terrible. Um, people going by the house. I can't say that that ever happened. Um, pretty private, so we're not really putting out where I live out there anyway. So I don't think that was an issue. Um, threats. Yeah, absolutely. That, that did happen. 
do you want to do you want to get into that? I mean, how do those? I mean, and you could be as vague or as specific as you like, or you can just tell me the next question. No, I mean it's. I'll give you an example. There, there is a couple of times where, um, just walking through Walmart, you know, people recognize you. Surprisingly, even with a mask on during a pandemic, they they'll recognize you, um, and you know, just start following you around, and for a lack of better terms, running their mouth and. You know, it is what it is. You just, like I said, I, I have an incredible wife and she says, hey, put the stuff down, put, put the groceries down. We're, we're, we're heading out. We can come back for this stuff another time. Now, something I just kind of thought about was the, were your conditions of release such that were you prohibited from carrying a firearm or having a concealed carry permit or having owning firearms, possessing firearms? Um, yes. And that was a, a difficult thing for me. Um, like I said, with family and law enforcement, I've always grown up around firearms um, and being in law enforcement at firearms. And, and, you know, had this been 30 years ago, it would have been a lot different because your, your, your picture may be on the news for one or two nights. You may be in the paper, but with social media, it lives forever and it's all over and it's plastered everywhere. Now, um, is there any, any, ever any discussion um, with your attorney uh, about taking a plea plea bargain if it was offered and was one ever offered to you? No one was never offered. And I talked to my attorney about this a couple times and I was always very firm saying, no, I do not want to. And again, this goes back to, I didn't think I did anything wrong. I, I don't feel this is right. I'm not going to admit to something and say I did something wrong when I, in my heart, don't feel that I did. Did you ever think to yourself now that you have a, a maybe a more of an appreciation of what somebody people you've charged um people who get charged with crimes especially very high crimes like these um you know what the what they're going through oh absolutely um i've thought about that uh more times than i can count and um it it, it absolutely shows a different side of it and it um i don't know if sympathy is the right word maybe it is but um you 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 definitely see another side of it. Well, I think the exact word you're looking for actually would be empathy because it really is the empathy does mean to put yourself in that other person's position. Sure. I've thought a lot about this. Um and I know my understanding is there was never in a lot of criminal cases um they'll have a step down or a, a, another jury instruction. So when they when they present the case to the jury, they'll read a jury instruction with all of the elements for second degree murder and they'll say for you to find this person guilty the state must prove A, B, C, D, all the different elements of the crime. And sometimes if the attorneys agree to this, they will introduce a jury instruction for a lower charge. And they'll say, now, if you can't come to a, 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 an agreement on this, a unanimous decision on this charge, and then they'll present one for, say, involuntary manslaughter, which is what you were initially charged with. Um, now, there are two there are two two ways of looking at it. One is, you know... You give them a, what, what some people call a compromise verdict where maybe nine out of 12 will say, yes, guilty to second degree, and you cannot get the other three, but the other three say, look, I'll, I'll go with the lower, and people agree on that. The other side of that is, um, I've lost my train of thought here, um, the defense may not want that because if you are confident in your defense and you're like, no, F these guys, they cannot prove second degree murder, we're going to make them prove this, 
we know they can't do it because when they can't do it, I'm going to get off. And you're not giving them that that opportunity to, to, to go with the lower. Now, you know, if my almost 25 years here in this in the criminal justice community here in, in New Mexico uh, has taught me anything is that I could actually see and I believe me, all of us had we're playing all these things through our minds. Um, I could almost see a very it'd be very conceivable for a person to to plead guilty under whatever circumstance, uh, whether it's a plea agreement or it's just straight up, um, you know, if you're pleading to a lower charge or if it's straight up that, you know, for involuntary manslaughter with a lot of mitigating factors, a person could probably avoid jail time. Um, again, that was, you know, you've, you've given your answer. That was never really on the table. Now, having said that, you're going to trial for second degree murder. Um, a second degree felony in New Mexico is punishable by up to nine years in prison. Um, compared to a lot of states, that's pretty darn low. But um, you had to, at some point, prepare yourself for the possibility. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, n- another one of those things here where you start talking about this and heartbeat starts going up a little bit. Um, yeah, there there were some, I've said it before, there were, there were some uncomfortable talks that had to be made. Um, luckily, I have an incredible family and from the absolute beginning they said hey no matter what happens we're here your kids will be okay I have an incredible close group of friends said the same thing hey we got your family your wife and kids they're gonna be good I promise you no matter what happens they are gonna be good and um, you know I, I think for me the the hardest part of that was potentially missing time out with the family. You know, my, like I said, my daughter just turned one. My oldest daughter just started kindergarten this year. Those are things I potentially could have missed. Those are things your one-year-old daughter wouldn't be here. Sure. She wouldn't exist. And and those are, those are things you can't get back. You know, how, how do you, how do you explain that to a kid later on in their life? You know, so. Well, your trial day finally came uh, in mid-July of last year, July 2022. I would imagine you're relieved, of course, that your day finally came. Was there ever a moment when you thought to yourself, let's go for one more delay? Uh, every single day. Every single day, I, 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 I kept you know, putting it out there. Hey, let's get this over with. I'm good to go in my head. Please let something happen. Please let this get delayed again. And you know what? It's... Like I said, I, I think it all just worked out the way that it was supposed to. But um, it was delayed a couple of times anyway. Right. So, I mean, it was it was almost like you get it in your head. Hey, this is just going to keep getting delayed. This may never happen. I may uh, I may become an old man with this thing still hanging out. You know. Well, and so. if we know anything, first of all, state court, at least in New Mexico, runs a lot slower than federal court. But the pandemic slowed everything down. Sure. Uh, the fact that this happened during the pandemic probably had some something to do with it. But... Um, was there ever any talk uh, about trying to get a change of venue? Um, there was talk about it. Um, I don't think it, it was never a serious enough talk or a big enough worry that we felt that it actually needed to happen. Um, one of the things that I will say is um, I think the minority of people tend to be the loudest. And, um, I, I think that really played into this here, you know, while the loudest is a small group, there was so many people here that, that were supportive and reached out 
and said, hey, this is wrong. You know, you're you're one of the good guys. This is not what's supposed to happen. And I think because of that, we we felt confident that, you know what, we can do this here. This this will this will be OK and it will work out the way that it's supposed to. I know that thought went through my head a lot. And then, of course, you know, I've had conversations with a lot of people about, you know, if there was a change of venue, it really is. a It, it was a, a double sided coin because you could get lucky and have it transferred to somewhere in the eastern part of the state, which tends to be very conservative, uh, very red, very pro law enforcement. Um, or you could have it end up in Santa Fe or Taos where things are just the opposite and you may not get a jury that's as sympathetic to you. Uh, in any case, it all worked out for you. You know, so the state rested its case uh, and then you, you get that great feeling when the judge granted, was there a moment when the judge grants the, the, the directed verdict? Is there a moment when you're like, wait, wait a second, what did I just hear? Oh, like, absolutely. Did he just, did he just effing say what he, what I think he said? Yeah, absolutely. I remember it happening and I didn't, I didn't really know how to react yet. And, and, you know, I'm kind of thinking now I, I heard it wrong. Nobody said anything. I, I, I misunderstood that. I'm, I'm going to sit down and we're going to continue on with this. And then I remember my attorney turning to me and kind of grabbing me on the shoulder and pulling me in for a hug and just let open the floodgates there. We, <laughs> it, it was, it was, uh, yeah, it, it was incredible. It really was. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, if you didn't hear the first couple minutes of this, he's still counting. Oh, yeah. I asked about oh, the, the way the, the describing the weight that was lifted off his shoulders. He said to go to one to 10 and we're still counting. Um, now, I know I do know that you had one sergeant uh, who's actually been promoted since who's been very supportive uh, of you uh, and has reached out to you periodically since then. Um, what's been the general feeling? Um, do you stay in contact with uh, your guys, guys that you worked with at the PD? Um, have people dropped off? Do people still check up? What's the general feeling? Uh, among your 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 former colleagues and and hopefully still you know some current friends. Um, well, that uh, former sergeant now lieutenant, um, I will never have even the slightest negative thing to say about him. Uh, he he was supportive and was willing to uh, to speak out when I don't think a lot of people would be, and not because it wasn't right, but because I think the fear of I could get in trouble for, you know, saying something, being out, supporting him, whatever it may be. Um, you know, I, I hate to say it. Unfortunately, there were maybe two or three people from the, the PD that I was pretty close with that kept in contact. Um, unfortunately, I, I just don't talk to a lot of them anymore. I, I think that um, I, I was I was told that um, they were instructed not to talk to me. And and I think it just kind of continued that way. And you know, I I try to not be uh, too angry about that or have hard feelings. But you know, it it definitely is a uh, it's not a good feeling. You know, those were a lot of guys that I uh, that I considered close friends. You know. Well, and you know what? These are people who, and I I be willing to bet that you feel the same way. You have no doubt if you were still in that position. Um, I mean, these are people who will run towards danger with you. They will run towards the sound of gunfire with, and they may not even like you personally and vice versa. You may not hang out with each other off duty. Um, but when you have that type of bond and that type of understanding and then something bad happens to you and those people won't talk to you, I can't imagine, um, can't imagine what that feels like, but you know what? Not to, I, I want to end on the negative. You have a life ahead of you. Yeah. You have children to raise. Um, you have some new career prospects. Uh, what does that all look like? Um, you know, I'm just, I'm grateful for the future. 
Um, I, I appreciate it a lot more now. Um, the goal still and always was, was to, uh, to get my job back. Um, I've tried to do that the right way with the, the city and I don't think they're going to be terribly helpful with that. Um, but we're still going to keep fighting that battle and I would love to get my job back. Um, if not, I've been looking into, uh, transitioning into a new career. I, I still want to do public service. I still want to serve my community and help. And, you know, I've, I've looked into maybe, um, becoming a firefighter, a paramedic, something along those lines, just, you know, you use, use some of my strengths in a different way to, to hopefully help people in a different way. And with that, raise my kids, enjoy spending time with my kids, cherish that a little bit more and just understand how precious all that is because it can very easily be taken away. And my understanding is that you do have some very good prospects in the very near future. And I'm going to keep my fingers crossed for you. Um, good luck to you. Uh, thank you very much for being my guest. I know we wanted to do this about six months ago. Uh, it didn't happen for you know several reasons, but um, I'm glad to be able to get you in here. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we were starting something new. Uh, we've had five seasons of the Square Peg podcast. We pushed out what I called a bonus or special episode last month. And from now on, we will not have seasons, but we aim to get an episode out every month. So this is going to be episode number 55 of the Square Peg podcast uh, with your host, Andrew Lawrence. And Christopher Smelzer uh, has been my guest. Thank you, Mr. Smelzer, for being on the show. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to let him say one more thing. Um, just one more thing, everybody listening to this. Uh, this is something I haven't had the chance to tell everybody, but everybody that supported me, thank you. Thank you so much. It absolutely has meant the world to me and my family. Um, you guys got me through one of the hardest things I've ever had to go through in my life. And, uh, I pray that me or anybody else ever has to go through anything like this again, but to the people that showed up every single day and I knew that you were there for me and my family. Thank you. It means the absolute world to me. And I, I owe you guys big time. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this uh, episode of the Square Peg Podcast as much as I have. We look forward to seeing you every month from here on out.